And I think the only announcement we have tonight is that um, we have the picnic coming up, and uh, things are moving along for that, so don't forget sign-up sheet in the back, and let us know to have a head count as well as uh, what you may be bringing. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. In God I will put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we open God's word, let's uh, bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that we have you to come to, that you are our rock, you are our hiding place, our fortress, you are our shield, you are the one who protects us and delivers us and watches over us day in and day out. And Father, we're thankful that we can relax and trust in you and not be worried or concerned, upset about whatever the uh, waves of adversity are that are going on in the world around us and all of the chaos and uncertainty, and that we can just trust in you. Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening that we might uh, come to understand it more clearly and be encouraged and strengthened by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Second Peter chapter 3. Chapter 3, and we are coming to the end of our study of Second Peter. And we will wrap things up next week, probably, and then I'll be on vacation, gone a week. Doug Petrovich will be here. You will enjoy him. And then when I get back on Thursday night, we will start up with Philippians. So that will be good. Philippians is one of my favorite books. It's a good, upbeat book focusing on the joy that we have in the Lord and the importance of rejoicing in all that God has, has given us. Tonight, we're going to pick up on three different key words in, uh, really in verses uh, 14 and 15, and one of them is the peace that we are to be pursuing in the spiritual life. The second is, to, is dealing with salvation, uh, that it is... Uh, the long suffering of the Lord is salvation. And then in the second half of verse 15 and into 16 is an important verse related to the scriptures, related to inspiration of scriptures, the gathering together of the writings of Paul, even at this early stage in the first century, building the canon of the New Testament. So we're in this last section the conclusion to the epistle, which contains a warning and a challenge, and they are not to fall into error. We are to be steadfast. We are to continue in the truth, and we are to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these are the three verses that we're looking at. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist, to their own destruction. So we are looking at these two verses where I covered most of the first one last time. We'll pick up a few things by way of review tonight. But there are two commands here. The first is to be diligent, and the second is to consider. The first command, to be diligent, is a word that we've seen, studied several times in uh, Second Peter, as well as in Ephesians, and it is a uh, aorist active imperative. Now, the difference really between an aorist imperative and a 
present imperative is that an aorist imperative is sort of uh, is is really pushing something, punching something, make it a priority. And a present imperative has the idea of more of make this just a standard operating procedure. Now, you can have a command with one word that's in one place as a present imperative because the context of the hearers is such that they need to be reminded to keep this as a priority. And then in another place, they're not doing real well at all, and so they need to make it a priority, and they need to uh, be, be really focusing on making that part of their daily spiritual life. So here the emphasis is on on making this a priority to be diligent, to be eager, to make every effort to be found in him in peace. And the second command is to consider, to think about it. This word is translated to think, to consider, to regard, to focus on something, to reflect on something, that idea. And it focuses on God's plan of and of salvation and how he is carrying it out. And both of these ideas go back to what's really happened in what he's talked about in the epistle. In chapter 2, it was the warning about the coming of the false teachers and not to be deceived by them. And in chapter 3, the focus was on countering the skeptical question of the false teachers as they were... um, uh, as they were uh, saying, where's the promise of his coming? They're scoffing, they're mocking. And uh, so they're questioning, well, everything just continues like it always did, so Jesus really isn't coming back and making fun of them for um, uh, waiting for the Lord to return. So we have these two commands to be diligent, to consider. Both of them wrap up major ideas that we studied in this epistle. So verse 14 starts off, it's a conclusion, and says, Beloved, while you think about these future things, and I talked about this word last night, I mean last week, uh, to wait for something, it's a, uh, a participle, and it's a waiting for, anticipating something. It's not just sitting around waiting and twiddling your thumbs. It's, it's in the sense of uh, what you're to occupy your mind with while you are uh, anticipating uh, the coming of the Lord. So he says, while you are anticipating or while you are contemplating these things and meditating about these future things, Well, what are we supposed to do uh, in the present? And this ties it back to the previous two verses. Both of those verses use this verb in verse 12, looking for and anticipating is really how that second word should be translated. Hastening is just a, a really poor word. It has the idea of enthusiastically anticipating something. Uh, so you're looking for it, you're enthusiastically anticipating the coming of the day of God, and we covered that already, that that relates to just a synonym for the day of the Lord uh, as seen in the context. And then in verse 13, they're to look for the new heavens and new earth. Both use this word. So three verses in a row talk about what you're to be anticipating, thinking about, focusing on, as a motivation for present reality, being motivated for how we live today in light of the future. And then he says that we're to make every effort, spudazzo, be eager, be eager, make every effort to be found by him. And I pointed out this word find in this sense has this idea of a judicial review, a judicial evaluation. And it's used that way several times to refer to statements by uh, statements by Pilate that he has uh, interrogated Jesus and he found no fault in him. So it's a judicial term for discovering uh, evidence of one sort or another. And then in uh, the end of the book, it is, I mean, the end of the verse, it says, be diligent to be found by him in peace. And so I went back 
to talk about this just a little more. When we find certain words and certain commands in Scripture, we need to ask the question, is this something that is positional or is this something that is experiential? And it's interesting as I scan through a number of commentaries that there are several who want to just automatically go to Romans 5.1 and say this is positional. But it's not positional. Nothing in the context is talking about what we have in Christ, our legal position our, or our identity in Christ, what is ours in Christ. It's all about the spiritual life. It's an encouragement. You have a conclusion in verse 11. Since all these things will be destroyed, what kind of life ought you to be living and it is a life of holy conduct and godliness. In other words, you're supposed to be living in light of a life set apart to the service of God and growing spiritually. So this is clearly a context of experience. Now, when we look at this idea of the living a righteous life, we ask this question about is that positional or is that experiential? And in Romans uh, 4, verse 2, it is talking about what we need to, ha to have righteousness. Now, remember the command in verse uh, 14 is to be diligent. Do we have righteousness because we're diligent? No, we don't have righteousness because we're diligent. We don't make every effort to be righteous. We look at the Romans 4, 2 and 3, where Paul goes back to uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and this is so important to understand that the basis of our position before God, our righteous position before God, is not based on what we do. It's not based on reading your Bible every day. It's not based on how many times you go to Bible class. It's not based on how many times you pray. It's not based on your, your efforts that are part of spiritual growth. That would be a salvation by works. And what we're told in Romans 4, uh, verse 2 and 3, that if Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about but not before God. In other words, as you talk to people, people look at your life, they see you doing certain things, and, and that's something positive, but it doesn't make you any more significant as far as God is concerned. And then he quotes from Genesis fifteen six. He says, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, one of the other books that we're going to look at when we come back to the end is Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 2, uh, verse 16, another fabulous statement related to justification. It starts off with a causal participle, because you know something that a man is not justified by, in this case, he says the works of the law, not just works, but he's dealing with the legalism that is being taught to the Galatians on the, from the uh, Judaizers. And so it is, he makes it specific that you are, we are not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ, Jesus, in Jesus Christ. And then he says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So justification comes because when we trust Christ as Savior, immediately, instantly, in a nanosecond of a nanosecond, we are given and credited with the righteousness of Christ. And as it were, we are clothed with righteousness. So from that point on, when God looks at us, he looks at us in terms of our righteousness and not in terms of our sin, not in terms of being spiritually dead, but now we are alive in Christ. That's part of our new identity. It's part of the fact that we are a new creature in Christ. 
And so that, that is positional righteousness. But there is also an experiential righteousness that the Scripture talks about. And it uses words, Scripture uses words like holy, which is from a Greek word, which is related to the Hebrew word of kadash is the verb, and it means to be set apart. So it's translated, um, the, the, the form of the word is hagiosmos, and it's translated as sanctification. So when Jesus prays to the Father, he says, sanctify them in truth. Well, what does that mean to be sanctified by means of truth? That's not positional because positionally we are sanctified, set apart to God the instant we're saved. This is talking about experiential sanctification. And another way to to express that is just talking about spiritual life or spiritual growth. How are we to grow spiritually? It's by the word of God. And so uh, Jesus prays to the Father, sanctify them or... uh, Uh, mature them spiritually by means of the truth. Your word is truth. So that's one of the two ways that we are to grow. We grow by the word and we grow by walking by the spirit. And the spirit works, the spirit of God works with the word of God to mature the child of God so that he reflects the image of Christ. And so this is our experiential righteousness, and we have a command. You can't a command a position, but you can command the, uh, the, the experience of growing. And so uh, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And in that list of four attributes, love and peace are also mentioned as part of the fruit of the Spirit. So we're to pursue righteousness. Well, we have righteousness in terms of our position in Christ. We have imputed righteousness. It is ours. But we are to pursue it in terms of personal life. So this is living in dependence of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is producing this Christ-like character in us, which is what's described by that somewhat awkward, nebulous word from the old English, godliness. Godliness just means uh, godlikeness was how they understood it in old English, and that's Christ-likeness, the character of Christ being formed in us. And so we see this context isn't dealing with, with positional truth. It's dealing with experiential truth. So 2 Peter 3.14 says that we're to be, make every effort to be found by him, and that would be when we are face-to-face with him at the end of our life, either through physical death or the rapture, in peace. And so we have to ask this question again because what is raised by a lot of people is that when peace is mentioned, they sort of default to something like Romans 5.1, that therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so on the one hand, we have this positional peace. We studied it in Ephesians 2, 14 and 15, that for he himself, that is Christ, the, the use of the uh, reflexive pronoun along with the pronoun is for emphasis. So we understand it is Christ alone who is the one who provides this peace for us. And he is our peace, and he made both one, that is Jew and Gentile, are now one in the body of Christ. There is peace between Jew and Gentile, the only legitimate racial distinction that is made in the Scripture is the distinction between Jew and Gentile, and it wasn't because the Jews were better than the Gentiles. In fact, God uses a lot of different rather pejorative terms to describe the Jewish people in the Old Testament that he tells them in Deuteronomy that it's not because there was anything good in you, it's not because you were so spiritual, because you're stiff-necked, you're rebellious, and uh, you're uh, not. I didn't choose you because you were any better than anybody else. 
but he chose them to be a trophy of his grace that he would work through this this malcontent family this this really dysfunctional family that goes through the old testament and and spreads out and, he, and he's going to communicate his word through them he's going to bring his savior through them and he is going to bless the entire world through them just to demonstrate uh, demonstrate his grace but at the cross that division that was established in the law is broken down. It's abolished in Christ's flesh, verse 15, that enmity between Jew and Gentile that was based in the law of commandments and the ordinances is removed. It's obliterated so that Christ can create in himself one new man, one new body, one new uh, household, and one new temple. And that's what we've spent so much time studying last year in Ephesians chapter 2. So if this peace isn't positional, it has to be experiential, that we grow. As we grow, we experience that peace. And we have wonderful statements and wonderful promises in the Scripture that emphasize this for us. And we see in Galatians 5.22 that we're told that the fruit of the Spirit. Now notice, the word fruit is singular. This is one fruit. It's not many fruits. One fruit. And that is talking about the singular character of the individual. And that singular character, that fruit, has different facets to it. And those different facets are different uh, characteristics, different qualities that relate to the character of Christ. I don't think this is an exhaustive list, but it is a, a fairly com- fairly full list that we are that that fruit of the spirit is first of all love, and love is mentioned because the command back in Galatians five fourteen was to love your neighbor as yourself, and and the question is well how do you really do that? Well, and then by uh, verse sixteen Paul says walk by means of the spirit and you will not bring to completion the lust of the flesh. For the flesh wars against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. So there's this conflict, this battle going on in each of us. That's why some people can look at Christians and say they look like a hypocrite. Well, they are. Most of us are at one point or another, because when we're walking with Christ, that's our new identity. And when we are not walking by the Holy Spirit, then we're operating on the sin nature, and that's contrary to our whole identity as as a new creature in Christ. But we're living ac- according to that sin nature, and so there's that, that internal conflict and struggle wh- which we all experience. And so for us to uh, get a better idea of how to evaluate our own lives, Paul then lists various sins which are to give us evidence. If you see that in your life, then you know that you're operating on the sin nature and you're walking according to the the sin nature and not according to the Spirit. And then he gives an example of the character qualities that the Holy Spirit is working on to produce in us, and that's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. There's our word. This is not just something positional, peace with God, but this is a mental attitude of contentment and tranquility that we're not going to be ruffled by all of the chaos that goes on around us. It is a relaxed mental attitude so that we can go through the the difficulties, the trials, the tribulations, the adversities, the heartache, the losses, all of the things that go on in life, living in the devil's world, and we can have a relaxed mental attitude and we can trust the Lord and have contentment. And not just it's not just a negative thing where we're not going to worry. We can have real joy and rejoice in those circumstances. And that's what Philippians is all about. So the peace is produced by God the Holy Spirit as we walk with him, studying and applying the word of God. It also includes long-suffering patience, or uh, as we see in this verse, God demonstrates that same long-suffering. Also, kindness and goodness, 
Kindness, goodness, and gentleness all are different facets of grace orientation, as is love. And then we have um, also self-control and faithfulness. So this is the fruit of the Spirit. So peace is something that is produced by the Holy Spirit in our lives. Romans 8, 6 contrasts, as Galatians 5 does, the walk by the sin nature and the walk by the Holy Spirit. In verse 6, Paul writes, for to be carnally minded, and that means to be fleshly minded, to be uh, controlled in our thinking and our living by the sin nature. And that is death. It's, that's carnal death. It's one of seven different kinds of death that's talked about in the Bible. You have spiritual death and you have physical death and, and you have eternal death. But this is carnal death when the believer is living like a spiritually dead person. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded, that is thinking that is influenced by God the Holy Spirit, that produces life, that is a quality of life, uh, and a, the abundant life, as Jesus said, I didn't come like a thief to steal and destroy, I came to give life and to give it abundantly. That's what this is talking about, that kind of rich uh, a rich experience of life, a capacity for living, and a joy that comes with that that isn't based on circumstances. And it is a life that is characterized by peace, by uh, contentment, by tranquility, an absence of internal conflict, an absence of uh, fear and worry. Romans fourteen nineteen. Paul says, therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace. So we are to have as our objective in the planning of our lives the things that uh, make for peace, that is an absence of conflict and tranquility. And then uh, verse 13, now in the closing benediction as he's approaching the end of Romans, he says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Now, he wouldn't say that if you already had it as a part of our identity in Christ. That is a peace with God, but peace in relation to the conflicts of the world around us, uh, God fills us with that as part of our uh, spiritual maturity. And it's by believing that gives us that me- the, the mechanics. How do we have it? By believing in what? By believing in the Scripture, by applying the Scripture, by uh, using the faith rest drill, by claiming promises, by keeping our focus on Him. Second uh, Corinthians thirteen eleven. In the same way, we have at the close of that epistle, he says, "Finally, brethren, farewell." become complete. In other words, be mature, grow to maturity, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And then one of my favorite passages is in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. This all ties together. Many times you hear me recite this verse, be anxious, which means don't be worried, don't be anxious, don't be stressed out, don't let the negative circumstances and situations that we all run into every single day again and again and again, you know, knock you off balance and keep you focused on all these issues that are going on around us. Be anxious for nothing but instead. See, God doesn't tell you just don't do something. There's a substitute. In everything by prayer and supplication. As you face these things, as we face these things, we need to learn to pray. We can pray short prayers. We can pray long prayers. We can claim promises. All of that is covered in that, uh, those two words, prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, express thanks for the situation. Thanks for the difficulty. Thank you, Lord, because as I have to go through this, I'm going to have to learn to trust you and rely upon you and learn not to let these kinds of things always uh, get the best of me whenever I encounter them. 
So with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And what's the result of this kind of God-dependent, focused prayer life in the midst of conflict? The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. You can't explain it. It's not something that is arrived at through following a rational process of of uh, autonomous self-help programs. It is by claiming the promises of God and walking by the Holy Spirit. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend you. It sets up a a wall of defense in our soul so that as as these things that go on around us are constantly are thrown at us, we can have a relaxed mental attitude in the midst of it uh, through Jesus Christ. And then we're given a recipe for what to think about, not just how to think, but what should be the content of our thinking. Whatever things are true... Now, when you fantasize about all the things that could go wrong, that you're not thinking about what's true. You're thinking about what could be, might be, what, what could happen, all the worst-case scenarios. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, that is, that which has virtue attached to it, whatever is just, whatever is according to the standard of God's righteous character, Whatever things are pure, that is, again, it's a synonym talking about the same idea, that which conforms to the character of God. Whatever things are lovely relates to thinking thoughts that are related to grace orientation. Whatever things are of good report, don't think evil of other people, don't let those thoughts dominate your thinking. (coughs) And then Paul concludes, he says, if there's any virtue If there's anything worthy of praise, meditate or think, focus and concentrate on those things. This is a great promise to claim. Uh, Learn all of those different qualities and evaluate your thought life on the basis of these standards. And then Paul concludes by saying the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me. And what he taught in Bible class, what they accepted, uh, what they heard him teach, what they saw him live in his life, do these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So that ends the section, and verse 6 begins it, talking about the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension in verse 7, and all of this tells us how we are to realize this kind of relaxed mental attitude, inner calm in the midst of the crisis. So then we are to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And in 2 Thessalonians 3.16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. All of these are passages related to uh, experiential realization of peace. 1 Peter 3.11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So this is an objective as part of our spiritual life. And we're to be reminded that when we don't have that experiential growth, we're not realizing that peace and we're just trying to handle everything on our own, that that leads to a failure and collapse in the spiritual life. And the result of that could very well be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. So we are to focus on these things as our objective. And then we look at the fact that uh, that concludes with the fact that we're to make every effort to be found by him in peace, and that's further explained without spot or blemish. That is, without uh, this problem of mental attitude sins, without this problem of overt sins because we've been walking, uh, walking with the Lord, And that phrase, as I pointed out last time, is in contrast to the false teachers whose lives are characterized by spots and blemishes. And so we are to live in this kind of a distinct manner. And this is one of uh, uh, Peter's favorite phrases. He says, uh, talking about Christ is the standard that he was a lamb without blemish and without spot. 
1 Timothy 6.14, we are to keep his commandment without spot or blemish. And James 1.27, we're to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. So all of this is part of the mental attitude and our approach. And you say, well, that's almost impossible or is impossible. We still have a sin nature. That's right. We're always going to sin, and we're always going to fail at times because of the nature of sin. And I always like this quote from Vincent Lombardi. He said, but though we cannot be perfect, if we strive for perfection, perhaps we might achieve excellence. And we need to pursue excellence in the spiritual life, not be satisfied with just being a mediocre Christian. When I was a young pastor in my first church, I'd hear people say, well, I'm just going to be glad to be in heaven. I don't care if I'm, I'm in, living in the gutter. And I thought, well, you don't really expect much. You're a low achiever in the spiritual life. And that's probably what you're going to get. But that's uh, we are to pursue excellence. Uh, excellence in the spiritual life. So then we came to verse 15, and the second word, to consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Now, we didn't have time to spend much on this last time, but this word consider is a the word hegeomai. It's a present imperative that we're, this is something that is a standard operating procedure, something that should represent our, our standard way of living is thinking about God and his patience in salvation. That we look around the world and, and we could get pretty impatient. I know nobody around here ever thought, man, I'm just so tired of these people. They can all just go to hell. Let's just go to heaven and get it over with. And I know nobody here ever thought that. But God is patient. He's long-suffering because he wants as many as possible to be saved. But this is a thought word. Second Peter, uh, Peter uses this a lot. In Second Peter 1.13, he said, Yes, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. And Second uh, Peter three nine, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some think about slackness. Now this is a, in the same passage. So in three nine, we have this verse uh, emphasizing that God is not slack about His promises. Remember the context is that the scoffers came scoffing and said, "Oh, where's the promise of His coming? He's never going to come back. Why do you live?" Uh, any differently than anybody else. Life just goes on, and Jesus is never coming back. And so this whole section really is to encourage them to wait. The Lord's not slack. He's got a purpose in waiting. He is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is, all should turn to Christ, turn away from their false thinking, atheism, secularism, polytheism, spiritism, and turn to Christ for salvation. Uh, this word is also used in Philippians uh, a couple of times, in Philippians 3, 7, and 8, where Paul uh, uses it to communicate considering something or thinking about it in that sense. Uh, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted or considered loss for Christ. Verse 8, yet indeed I also count or consider all things. So this is a thought word again related to uh, Christianity. That we are to consider the patience of God, the long-suffering of God. Macrothemia. Themia is a word that means anger. Macro means long, so it means long. It takes a long time before you get angry or upset. So we are to think about reflect upon the patience, the long-suffering of our God in salvation. And that's what that's related to. So the Lord is not slack, as I just pointed out, but is long-suffering toward us. Uh, Paul makes the same statement in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, where he says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
that God desires everyone to be saved because in a foundational spiritual way, we're all just as much violators of God's righteousness and justice. And even some are horrible criminals and they commit all manner of sin. But it is um, God has provided a salvation for everyone. It doesn't matter what they've done, who they are, how unlovely they are. We're all equally as obnoxious to God. But he has done everything possible to save as many as possible. And then there's this break. I think in uh, New American Standard, it just put a semicolon there. In the New American Standard, it uses an M dash, which is emphasizes there's more of a, it's a It's a break in the middle of a sentence where he is shifts to a different topic. And uh, this in this break, in this shift, what he is doing is he's going to uh, focus on the fact that they have been taught this. This isn't something new from Peter, but they've been taught this from the Apostle Paul. Now remember when we first started teaching in these uh, two Petrine epistles that back at the beginning of the first one, he writes that he is he is uh, addressing uh, the pilgrims of the dispersion, which is a technical term for the Jewish dispersion. So he's writing to Jewish background believers, and where do they live? They live in Galatia. These are the names of Roman provinces in what is today Turkey. Uh, they're in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. Uh, Asia, and Bithynia. And those that lived in Galatia, uh, here's a map, and here we have uh, Asia. This is was the Roman province of Asia. Now, he's writing to Jewish background believers in this area, in the green area here is Galatia, and this is uh, North Galatia up here, but South Galatia here is the area that Paul went to on his first um, first missionary journey, and that's what this map is showing with the follow the the red lines. And so you have um, Cappadocia mentioned, which is up here, but it's interesting that he doesn't mention Cilicia. Cilicia is this area along the coast on the on the uh, east side uh, southeast part of Turkey, where Tar- Tarsus is located. And you have the Taurus Mountains. It's an extremely rugged territory. Now, oh, a couple of weeks ago, I was looking at a couple of things in terms of Christian-related um, documentaries on, I think it was on Amazon Prime. And there's one called The Last Apostle. It's a two-hour documentary, very well done. It was produced, I think, in 2019, the photography is incredible, and it's uh, they're following a guy by the name of do you, Bryce. You remember his last name, Mark, something or other. Anyway, he's a PhD in archaeology, and he's uh, he just goes all over the place in a, a, a primarily Cilicia. But what he's doing is he's walking. He's walk. He spent the last ten years walking all of these. Uh, ancient roads, has his Ph.D., teaches at, at a couple of different schools, uh, Ph.D. in um, archaeology and and New Testament, and he has walked these old Roman highways and discovered all kinds of places that are out of the way, difficult to get to, because there's never been any uh, kind of antiquities authority in Turkey that has had a lot of money. What? Fair? Fairchild? Okay, Mark Fairchild. Anyway, he uh, he just tra- uh, traverses these roads and takes you to some amazing places, and it's very likely that this uh, these are some of the places that Paul went to. He discovered, as he was in one, one location, as he was just looking for one thing, as he entered into uh, a side entry to this city in this real extremely rugged section, that as he's going into it, he, he looked at the 
the lintel over the doorway and as he's bending down and it's all worn and everything but what he saw some lines there and he stopped and he cleaned it off and what he discovered was an ancient menorah that was carved into that uh, lintel of the door which would indicate that that was a uh, a synagogue and they did further study, further explore, exploration, he documented it, and this is the oldest known synagogue in one of these areas. And what, what did Paul do? Paul would go first to the synagogue and, and uh, give the gospel, and then uh, usually they would, he'd be thrown out and there would be a division in the synagogue, and some would be saved and some wouldn't. But it's just remarkable. So if you want to watch something uh, interesting, uh, it's really well done. And I've watched all of it, parts of it twice, and I haven't run into anything that is said there that is contrary to any uh, scripture. He has a solid view of scripture, Pauline authorship, nothing related to any kind of liberal ideas or are uh, peeking out from under the cover. So it's it's really well done. So these areas, this is Paul's in, uh, initial journey, went to Cyprus, then up to the southern coast here in Pamphylia, then up to uh, uh, Phrygian Anti- or Pisidian Antioch right here on the edge of the, with Phrygia, then over into this area in southern Galatia and back. And then on the second journey, remember he came in, checked on these, uh, churches that he had founded the first time, and then he heads this way and and goes up towards uh, uh, modern Istanbul, and the Holy Spirit prevented him from going into Asia or Bithynia and Pontus and Galatia. But then later when he cycles back and he spends two years in Ephesus, uh, which is uh, located uh, right here, when he spends two years there in Ephesus, He's training these men, and he's sending out missionaries, and they go out and and start churches all over Asia and up into Galatia and uh, Bithynia and Pontus, and uh, Peter himself had gone to some of these places. So when Peter writes this, and and he is saying that that, uh, Paul has written to them, he's writing to people who have been the recipients of Galatians and Colossians and Ephesians and these and Philemon and these were uh, scripture that would have been circulating and the next verse tells us that they're already gathering them so he refers to Paul as our beloved brother Paul which shows that he he has great respect for Paul and there was one time when Paul had to uh, confront him. So just keep your place there and let's turn back to uh, to Galatians right before Ephesians, Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, Paul had to really confront Peter because Peter was just turning against what he had been instrumental in developing. Now, if you remember when Peter, back in Acts chapter 10, it's really interesting. Peter is staying at the home of Simon the Tanner. That's in the context of the fact that he's going to be told by God to go to the house of a, of a Gentile, which is unclean. And no, no law-abiding Jew would ever go eat in the house of a Gentile. The food would not be according to uh, the dietary laws, the food wouldn't be kosher. And yet he's in the home of Simon the Tanner, and Tanner is tanning hides, taking off of dead animals, handling carcasses. All of that would have made him um, unclean, and he would have prob- had to do, do, go through various ritual to be, to be cleansed. But that's where he's staying. So there's a little bit of irony going on in, in, that, in that context. And he has this vision from God and sees this big tablecloth coming down and there's all of these unclean animals. There's, there's shrimp and lobster and catfish and pork and all kinds of good things to eat. And all of it, of course, is treif. That's the uh, Jewish word for something that's non-kosher. 
and Peter just won't. God says, take and eat. And Peter three times says, no, I'm not going to eat that. And then God says, what I've determined is clean is clean, period. And so you can eat it. And God's using this to show that he says there's going to be some messengers coming from uh, Cornelius, and you need to go with them so that Peter's going to get the point that it's now okay to go eat in the home of a Gentile. And so that's what chapter 11 is about, is when Peter takes the gospel to them. And then uh, Peter's going to come back, and in uh, the latter part of uh, Roman, uh, excuse me, in Acts, in Acts uh, 12 and 13, he's going to be uh, coming back to the disciples and explaining just exactly what happened. That hap- And then in Acts 15, there's the uh, Council of Jerusalem, and there's this huge dispute between the apostles. How are we going to treat, what, treat the Gentiles? What do we expect of the Gentiles when they uh, trust in Christ? Do they have to follow the law? All of these issues were there. And at that point, Peter rose up and he said, uh, in Acts fifteen seven, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the gospel, the word of the gospel, and believe. So God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit as he did to us. No, there's no difference between us and them. Peter is understanding what Paul talks about later in Ephesians 2. And God made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. And so this brings a resolution to that problem. But after this, we have this problem with, with Peter that Paul talks about in uh, Antioch in Galatians 2.11. And he says, When Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him face to face. I, got it, I had to get in his face and confront him because he was at fault. He was to be blamed. For before, cert, before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. He was having a great time eating all of the uh, pork chops and all of the barbecued pork and everything else that they had, and uh, shrimp and lobster and catfish. And then as soon as these messengers from James, who's the head of the church in Jerusalem, came, he immediately you know, turned legalist and got all uptight and wouldn't even go in the homes of the, of the Gentiles. And Paul confronts him about this. He said, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. That must have been just some kind of pressure because you get all these leaders who all succumb to this pressure to act as if they've never been in the home of a Gentile and they weren't uh, having fellowship with them. And so Paul says in verse 14, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel... See, for Paul, it's always about the truth of the gospel. It's always about the truth of Scripture. Everything comes back to, is this scriptural? Is this biblical? Is this what God has told us to do? He says, he said to Peter, before all of them, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews... Why do you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. And then he goes on to state the verse I quoted earlier, that a man is not justified by the works of the law. So this was, this was foundational. But by the time you get to Peter writing this last epistle, they have made up. Peter uh, corrected himself and responded with humility to Paul's correction, which is difficult to do when pride gets in the way, but he uh, knew better, and so he straightened up. And now he talks about our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him. 
Now, just a reminder, what is wisdom? Just because it's written in Greek and they use the word Sophia doesn't mean it's talking about Greek intellectual philosophy. You have to always understand that a lot of these words are just translations of the key words from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, you have a lot of passages talking about wisdom. That's what Proverbs is all about. You have wisdom psalms. And these are psalms, and the Proverbs are to teach people skill at living. The uh, Hebrew word for uh, for wisdom is chokhmah, which means skill. It describes the skill of Bezalel and Aholiab when they were chosen by God and the Holy Spirit came on them to uh, manufacture, to build, to create, the uh, do all of the woodwork in constructing the, uh, the tabernacle, do all of the work with the gold and the silver and the other metals, that they did it with a skill. It wasn't just knowledge. There, there are a lot of people who can be given uh, basic knowledge about how to do things. Maybe some of you grew up and you had piano lessons or you were in band or you uh, played football. Uh, some people, people I, grew, I knew later on grew up in a small town and it seemed like every guy in the high school played football. Now, some of them act, sort of knew what they were supposed to do, but they couldn't pull it off. Others knew, and they just had a talent or a skill to apply in a brilliant way the techniques that they were taught. The same thing with with music. There are some people who are just absolutely incredible. They learn the basics, and then they just, just take off. Well, that's what wisdom is. It's not just information. We live in the information age, and everybody can find out all kinds of data uh, on the Internet. I had somebody one time said, well, you know, the way we do church isn't really right. People can get out and find out all this information on the Internet. Well, yes, you're right, and they can find a lot of other information in the Internet that's that's bad. And you have to have a pastor teacher just because you have the Internet now doesn't mean God doesn't provide pastor teachers, and it doesn't mean that pastor teachers aren't necessary. Uh, we not only have to have information, but we have to be taught. We have to understand the knowledge. And as I always say, information is not knowledge, and knowledge isn't wisdom. Information is knowing that avocados and tomatoes are fruits. And knowledge is not putting them in a, in a, in a fruit salad. But wisdom is putting them together and making guacamole. That's the difference. So that's Paul is uh, teaching and writing according to the wisdom, that skillful application, that skillful understanding of doctrine uh, given to him. And then in verse 16, as also in all his epistles. Well, that tells us something. That tells us that Peter knew about the Pauline epistles. We don't know that he knew every one of them, but he knew a lot of them. He was fully aware of them. And he says in all of his epistles, he's speaking in them of these things. What are these things? Everything that's been covered. Paul had to deal with false teachers. He had to deal with those who were scoffing at what he taught. He was... Uh, uh, brutalized at times. He was beaten and he was flagellated with a Roman uh, flagellum and all of these things. He was shipwrecked three times. We only know about one of them in Scripture. He was thrown to the lions. We're not sure where that was. All of these things happened to Paul, and, and yet he stood firm for the faith. And so everything that Peter is saying uh, Paul writes about. He writes about the day of the Lord. He writes about the second coming of Christ, all of these things. And so that's what Paul says here. In all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Now, Peter has some things that are hard to understand. We spent about eight weeks just going through Second Peter three ten to 14. Sometimes it takes a lot of time to really understand what the scriptures are saying. And Peter is saying, I've read Paul, and there's things there that are very difficult for me to understand. So he is recognizing that. And that these things that are difficult to understand, he then says that there are untaught 
and unstable people who twist these to their own destruction. Now, these words that are used in, in the Greek here are well translated. They, they aren't used very much in the, in the New Testament, but the word for uh, hard to understand means just that. It's based on the word, the uh, root for noose, which is the mind, and it has that idea of something that is very difficult or very hard to comprehend. The word that is translated um, untaught has to do with those who are not learned. They're not taught. They're not, uh, they're ignorant of the scripture. And the word that is translated as unstable means exactly that. They are not able to stand, so they're unstable. And we've talked about this all through Second Peter. His concern is for them to grow spiritually so that they can be established, similar root, uh, so they ha- have stability in their spiritual life. In contrast, you have these unstable false teachers who twist things to their own destruction. Now, I could tell you all kinds of things to go watch on TV, and you'll see examples of people who are unstable, everything from self-help psychologists. Some of them are in pulpits and churches, and some of them are under the guise of psychiatrists. But it's it, it, all they are is teaching you how to be more self-absorbed. And you see this in the whole health and wealth gospel movement. And that just dominates a lot of what's on Christian airwaves. Thankfully, there are a few fairly solid Bible teachers who you can find every now and then, but most of it is just uh, is distorted, it's twisted, and it has absolutely nothing to do with biblical Christianity. And they not he, and Peter goes on to say, not only do they twist what Paul said to their own destruction, but also the rest of Scripture. And so we need to spot people like this and just to stay away from them. And it's really sad as a pastor. I don't think anything bothers me more than seeing people who have apparently had a stable Christian life and then all of a sudden watch them go off the rails and way out of bounds. And I've seen them just completely dump everything related to Christianity and go into just uh, rank immorality. And I've seen them go into other kinds of just ritualistic, legalistic, uh, religious denominations because they, they what they reveal is they never quite got it or uh, they were just too uh, unstable in terms of dealing with their own sin nature to be able to continue to grow in a straight direction. They needed, they always say, oh, I need something more something more than the sufficient teaching of God's Word. You need ritual, really? You need emotion? You need subjectivity? That just tells me that you never really got it. But it is so hard as a pastor when you see people do this. It just, it's disappointing, and it, it, it's just so, so sad. And anytime I talk to pastors, you know, that's one of the things we try not to think about. It just, you, you, people have their own volition, and you have to give people the freedom to uh, succeed and also the freedom to fail. And it just, it's like parents with children. When they see their children become rebellious and go off the rails, it just breaks their heart. And that's the same thing for, for a pastor. So this is why Peter and Paul and others are warning those that they're writing to not to fall prey to the uh, to all the attractions of the world or to the deceptions of the false teachers. The other thing that we learn from this is that there's all he he calls when he says as they do also the rest of scripture that is showing by implication that he thinks Paul's writings are scripture. So they're already at this stage in the early church. This is somewhere around 63, 64 A.D., five or six years before the destruction of Jerusalem. It indicates there's already the, uh, the attempts to gather together the writings of Paul in a collection. And this really took uh, time. It took about uh, 200 years 
before they really settle the issue of what is Scripture and what is not. And it was never settled at a council. You'll hear people say, oh, well, they, uh, the church leaders met at the Council of Nicaea, and they made a decision as what would be Scripture and what would not be Scripture. And that's garbage. Those are false teachers that are talking. And they'll say that this happened at a, a, a different council. By then, it's become pretty clear that that through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the lives of the church, people recognized what w- wasn't quite up to the same level as that which has been revealed by the Holy Spirit. And there were never any uh, of these other writings, except maybe at the very early stage in the second century, the Didache and... Um, uh, the shepherd of Hermas were used in churches as kind of devotional purpose, but by the middle of the second century, uh, they're not mentioned anymore. And the the only problem that they had in the in developing the canon in, is that there were uh, some some epistles like Second and Third John that are written to individuals and weren't as well known, or Philemon was written to an individual and wasn't as well known. And then people had problems with uh, Revelation because there's a curse at the end of it. If you mishandle it or misinterpret it, then there's a curse. Judgment of God is going to come on you. So things like that, it was a little slower. Nobody knew who wrote Hebrews, so it was a little slower before that's recognized. But what they came to do in the councils, what they were doing was recognizing what the accepted practice was within the church. And that was these 27 books that we now have and no no other books were ever seriously considered to be part of the new testament some of the books that we have in the new testament were a little slow in getting recognition but there were never any others you didn't have any of the uh, gospel of thomas or any of these others never even got inside the door much less to first base uh, they they were they were never given any kind of uh, even a slight consideration, never mentioned. So when you hear these new agers and you hear uh, what's his name who uh, wrote about um, I forget what that was called now the um, the book about about Christ uh, I, I can't remember that came out about twenty years ago can't remember his name now I haven't thought about it in a while anyway. When you read those things, and they make a big deal about the Gnostic Gospels, Dan Brown, uh, when you read, he wrote Angels and Demons and something else. Anyway, uh, they're just trying to promote these Gnostic Gospels that never had any play. But this gives us real confirmation that by the middle to the late of of the first century, there is a significant group of apostolic writings that are recognized as being authoritative from God. And by the time you get to to the late 200s, it's pretty solid. People are recognizing nearly all of the 27 books. So next time we come back and we'll look at the closing two books and kind of wrap up the overview of Second Peter. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and uh, ask you to just help us to do what these verses say that we are to uh, discern where to, I mean uh, we're to be eager and diligent and make every effort to pursue the growth in our spirit spiritual life and we are to focus on and think about your long suffering in relation to salvation which demonstrates your love for the Uh, for the world, your desire to see all saved, and yet so often people just turn their back on you, and that's their decision. Father, help us to focus on these things as Scripture says. In Christ's name, amen.